Well, turn to the book of Genesis with me. We're studying the journey of uh, Abraham's journey of faith. Just a uh, couple of reminders from last week. You remember Abram uh, arrived in Canaan. Uh, he finds the land filled with people who are so wicked that God is going to destroy and give the land to the descendants of Abram. And as he moves through the land, everywhere he goes, he builds an altar to the Lord. And what he's doing is claiming the territory because it's his descendants who will receive this territory, but he's also declaring that there's one true God worthy of worship. And that was a reminder to us that Abram was a missionary as he went about uh, claiming this territory. What do missionaries do? Missionaries declare uh, God's name to people. They lead people to a knowledge of God and they lead people to the worship of God. So like him, we're missionaries. God expects us to claim the territory, and that territory is different for all of us. It's wherever he has placed us, where he's planted us, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, or in school, and we're there to bring the knowledge of God to the people around us, and we're there to proclaim that there's one true God, and he alone is worthy of worship. Second thing I wanna remind you of from last week in, uh, in Genesis chapter 13, was that Abram had a big lapse of integrity and that led to a very embarrassing uh, failure as well as a blot on his reputation. Not only those, uh, those who were with him in his party, but also the people of Egypt um, that kind of put a blot on the God, caused him to question the name of the God that he says that he followed. And when believers don't act with integrity, that brings the name of God into question. It has a negative effect on how people view God. And with that in mind, we asked this question last week as we were wrapping up, do you live in a way that upholds the reputation of God? And I don't know if you had time or, or took time to really reflect on that and meditate on that, but certainly worthy of some consideration, some evaluation. Do we live in a manner, in a way that upholds the reputation of God? This month I received an, an update. We get a monthly update from FAM for All Mankind Movement. Most of you know that we're involved uh, with FAM in India. In there at West Bengal, and they sent us an update this week, and it was amazing to see um, what has happened just in the last month. By the way, let me mention there is a, there's a dramatic increase in persecution in India. And if you uh, pray for work in India, you can certainly pray for the pastors we work with. Uh, many of the pastors have been taken to police stations by angry mobs. Um, these mobs are accusing them of forced conversions, which is illegal. It's not what they're doing. Many pastors have been uh, attacked. They've been beaten. They've had their meetings uh, shut down by force. And yet in the midst of all that, in the midst of that persecution, in the last month in, in West Bengal, 1,355 people have been reached with the gospel. 106, 106 of them have already been baptized. And I understand baptism is a significant mark in India. Uh, when you show up to be baptized, you may not be returning home. You may not be returning to your village. You may not be accepted by your people any longer. And so when someone shows up for baptism, it's a significant mark and a clear indication that they're serious about their faith. 106 baptized in the last month. 146 story groups started just in the last month. The story group is where people can come who haven't yet responded to the gospel. They can come and hear stories uh, from the Bible. 619 new leaders have been trained, 16 new churches planted just in the last month. Why do I say that? It's to remind us what Aaron said a moment ago. It's to remind us that the name of Jesus is powerful. The name of Jesus, the gospel is still powerful. But it certainly begs the question for us, how come we don't see that kind of power in, in the U.S.? 
How come we don't see that kind of movement of God? Well, well the power is still available. The power still flows. So there must be some kind of short circuit down line from where the power flows. And I think it's the fact that believers, more than impacting the culture, have been impacted by the culture. And the church doesn't have the effect here that it does in other places where a commitment to Christ is, is much more serious. And I would say to you this morning, there are people who won't embrace the version of the Christian God they see in America because of the hypocrisy and the moral failure they see in those who claim to be followers of Christ. And so we need to be asking the question on a regular basis, does my life, does the way I live my life uphold and give testimony to the gospel and the God that I claim to follow? In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter wrote these words that are probably familiar to many of you. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a people for his own possession, listen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. The reason we're to live holy lives set apart to God is so that we can proclaim his excellencies to other people. Well, that's just some food for thought. Let's jump in this week in chapter 14 as we continue our study of Abram's calling and, and his journey. You remember from last week that Abram and Lot had separated. Lot was Abram's nephew. When Abram left Ur, Lot went with him. Uh, as his nephew, he was the only close male relative Abram had. Lot's father, Haran, had died back in Ur. Abram had no, no son, no children, so Lot was like a son to him. And, and Abram took Lot under wing, and Lot had uh, benefited from that. Just as Abram was wealthy with lots of livestock and herds, uh, so was Lot. And Lot and Abram came to the point where they couldn't both be sustained on one piece of land. And so Abram gave Lot first choice. You remember that Lot cho chose the fertile plain of Jordan. And we read last week that he moved all of his uh, family and his herds, his livestock. He moved in the direction of Sodom. Even though scripture tells us the men of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. Now, we don't know how much passed between Genesis 13 and where we're jumping in today at Genesis 14. Evidently, uh, months or even years had passed at this point. Lot's no longer living out on the plain near Sodom. He is now a resident of Sodom. And we also see this week in chapter 14, Abram has 318 trained fighting men in his household. So a period of several months and perhaps several years had passed between Genesis 13 and Genesis 14. If you look in chapter 14, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. The first 12 verses describe a war taking place, four kings against five kings. And by the way, don't think of a king as king over this vast area. A king could just be over a city, just a small area, but four kings over five kings. And the reason this war was taking place at this point, there are no strong national governments. There are no um, coalitions. So people sought safety in numbers. They would gather in a city and, and put a king over them, and that's how they would get safety. They'd, they'd gravitate to cities, or some would do what you see in Abram's case. They would find a powerful man, and they would attach themselves. They'd go to that man and offer their loyalty offer their service in exchange for protection and, and provision. Look down at verse four, chapter 14, 
excuse me, look in verse 14 of chapter 14. You see the reference to Abram's 318 trained men. It says they were born in his house. That doesn't necessarily mean they were born uh, as part of his extended family. That may be true in some cases, but born into his house was an ancient expression that simply meant they were not purchased. They were not slaves um, that Abram had, had purchased. They served him by choice. Abram was a powerful man. He was very influential. He was also at this point very wealthy, so he attracted followers. People saw that Abram's community was protected, saw that they had provision, they had what they needed, and so some would come to join up and ask to be a member of his household. That's what it means that they were born into his household. Now, Abram at this point, chapter 14, he's living uh, peacefully out in the countryside, But there's this war going on, you see, in the verse 12 verses. No national government, so a lot of raiding, uh, a lot of conquering that went on. Kings of a larger city-state were looking to expand their territory, and they knew that they could make others subservient to them. Well, 14 years prior to this war that we see taking place in chapter 14, a king by the name of Kador Loamer, king of Elam, had controlled the plain of Jordan. He basically had come in, and he had conquered all these cities on that plain, including Sodom and Gomorrah, and he made them vassals. In other words, they paid uh, heavy taxes to him in exchange for protection. It's kind of like if you've seen a movie or seen a TV show where gangs control an area of the city, and they would make the shop owners pay them. Uh, in order to have protection. And of course, if you didn't pay for protection, if you didn't make payment, you were going to need protection from your protector. And so what happened in verse 4, the kings of the five cities, including Sodom and Gomorrah, they decided they'd had enough extortion from this king. And so they said, you know what? We're not going to pay any more taxes. We're just going to rebel and take our chances and see what happens. Well, what happened was, Kador Leomer and his allies decided to teach not only those five cities, but all the cities, everyone living in Canaan, they decided to teach them a lesson they wouldn't forget. So they've come and they've set out with their militaries and they brutally attacked every city. And this is a good sized army that no one was able to defeat. And so this, this army, Kador Leomer and his kingdom dominated the plain of the Jordan. Well, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with three others, just said, you know what, we're going to go out and battle him and battle the kings that are allied with him, and, and we're going to put an end to this. Well, what happens? First thing that happens is when they go out to face this army, two of the five kings, coincidentally, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, ran away. Uh, they fled. And the other three kings left on their own were soundly beaten. Now, Abram and his household are not personally affected by what's happening, but look with me in verses 11 and 12 of Genesis chapter 14. We read, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the possessions, all of their provisions, and they went their way. Now look at verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went on their way. Now, it's not uncommon for conquering kings not only to take all the possessions of the cities they conquered, but it's not uncommon for them to enslave the people, for them to take the people and take them back as prisoners. That would increase their country's pool of of slave labor. And Lot is taken. And the reason Lot is taken is he's now a citizen of Sodom. Uh, let's, let's pause right there for just a minute. Lot is a citizen 
of Sodom. He's a citizen of one of the most immoral cities in all of history. Lot's a citizen of Sodom, and he's joined himself to a city that Scripture says sinned greatly against God. I wonder what Lot was thinking as he's being hauled off into captivity. All of his possessions have been captured, and he and his family, his wife and his children, are being hauled off. They're marched off into captivity. I wonder if there's any soul-searching going on. What if he's wondering to himself, how, how could I have let this happen? What's going to become of my family? I think Lot probably was doing some soul searching. It's some of the same soul searching that men do today when they realize they brought devastation and destruction on their family because of selfish and sinful decisions. Lot is carried off as a citizen of Sodom. But look back with me in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 12. When Lot separated from Abram, it says that Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. So, so like Abram, he's not living in a city. He's living out in the, in the countryside, but you can be assured his, his eyes were always turned and drawn toward the city, toward the bright lights and toward all the, uh, the action he could hear. The lure of the city was strong and it was irresistible. Maybe his wife wanted more of a social life. Maybe his kids were bored. They said, Dad, we don't, we don't have anything to do out here. And so they moved into Sodom. You see, the move toward Sodom was the first step down a very slippery slope. You don't, you don't wake up one day and suddenly find yourself immersed in and tempted by wickedness all around you. That doesn't just happen all of a sudden one day. It's a very gradual process. It begins with the decision to move toward sin instead of away from sin. And that's what happened. That's why Lot was in Sodom. I love the words of Paul in, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. He says it's so simple. He says, make no provision for the flesh. I might paraphrase that verse this way. People don't fall into sin, they plan it. Lot and his wife and his family didn't just suddenly find themselves in the most wicked city ever in history. They didn't just suddenly end up there. It was that one step in moving away from Abram and pitching his tent toward Sodom, and then they ended up in Sodom. Well, let's pick up the story. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter. Let's pick the story up in chapter uh, 14, verse 13. Then one, this is after the, everyone's been carried off into captivity, one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his, king, his kinsmen had been taken captive, he kept, led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return to the feet of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet them in the valley of Shabed, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre have or take their share. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if I was Abram, dealing with an ungrateful, selfish nephew who had gone and aligned himself or associated himself with some wicked people who were living in open rebellion against God, it might have been tempting to say, well, you know what? Lot made his bed. Let him lie in it. Maybe Lot will learn a, a good lesson here that this all serves him right. But remember, Abram had been rescued by God from a bad situation in Egypt, a situation that had gone horribly wrong. And I think as a result of what happened in Egypt, Abram's a much more humble man through that experience. And it's easy for us, I think, even as, as believers, when we see a fellow believer getting into trouble, it's easy for us to be filled with pride, isn't it? We look at what's happening in that other person's life and we think, well, I, I'm glad I haven't done things like that. But we need to remember we're all made of the same stuff. That means all of us, are not above sin when we're presented with the right circumstances. That's why Paul said in, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. And so Abram deals with this situation with his nephew Lot with great grace, just like God had dealt with Abram with, with, with great grace. Scripture tells us he had 318 trained men. He had his own militia. And, of course, that was necessary at this time. If you didn't live in a city, you had to have your own people around you to protect you. And with the allies that are mentioned there in verse 13 and verse 24, he took immediate action. Abram, notice, led them against these enemy kings. He didn't send them. He led them. You remember Abram was 75 when they left Haran to go on to Canaan. This is several years later. He's got to be in his 80s, mid-80s by now. And he led them out into battle. And Scripture tells us that they traveled about 100 miles. And Cordero Laramir and all his allies were 100 miles from where this conquest had happened. And so they're chilling. They're taking it easy. They're not expecting anyone. They, they've soundly defeated and humiliated these armies in Canaan. They're not expecting anyone to come after them at this point. And so they're just camped out in a valley outside the city. Abram evidently is a good military strategist. He divides his forces into different groups and he goes in at night. It's not quite the same odds as Gideon had with his 300 men facing multiple thousands. But here's Abram with 318 trained men and he sends this army of thousands running. But he's not done yet. Not only does he scatter these armies and send them running, but before he gathers all the possessions and people to return to Canaan, it says that he pursued them another 50 miles and completely scattered that army. Verse 16 says he recovered the goods and the people. And of course, that would include his nephew Lot. In fact, it specifically mentions that he rescues Lot. Now, you don't see any mention of the reunion between Lot and Abram here. You got to wonder 
I mean, if I'm Lot, I'm falling on my face before Abram. You got to wonder if, if, if Lot, knowing Lot, if there was any expression of gratitude at all. But even if there was, I'm sure Abram must have been disappointed when they returned. It doesn't say this in chapter 14, but we'll see it later. When they returned to Canaan, where did Lot go? He went right back to Sodom. But once again, Abram is filled with grace because he's the beneficiary of, of the grace of God. Now, before they get back, look down in verse 18. The, the news of the victory got back even before Abram and company. And on his return, there are two men that come out to meet him. The first, verse 18, is Melchizedek. He's, scripture says, the king of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. So he's the king of that part of Canaan, and he comes out to greet Abram. It also says in verse 18 that he was a priest of the Most High God. That's why he brought out bread and wine. That was a, a priestly act. And, and you can learn more about Melchizedek in Hebrews 7. There's some confusion about who is Melchizedek. Was he a pre-incarnate version of Christ? Melchizedek, as far as I can read in Scripture, was a man, but he was definitely a type or a picture of Christ as priest. What does Melchizedek do? Well, he doesn't take away from Abram's bravery or his military uh, ability, but you notice he gives God the glory for the victory, not Abram. Look in verses 19 to 20. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram, you're blessed because of what God has done. You were successful because of what God has done. And blessed be God most high, and blessed by God most high who's delivered your enemies into your hands. So he's not only acting as king, but he's acting as priest. And because of that, you see this, Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of all the recovered spoils. Why is he doing that? He's doing that to honor the Lord. He's not doing that because Melchizedek needs it. He's doing that because this is a priest representing God, Abram, wants to honor the Lord. Now, this is the first time in Scripture you'll see a tithe that is given. Why is that important? It's important because people like to say, well, tithing was part of the Old Testament law. Tithing is legalistic. It, it was part of the law. We're, we're not bound by the law anymore. No, we're certainly not. But here it's clear that tithing was practiced before the law. Tithing was not about legalism. Tithing was about obedience and about honoring the Lord. Listen, when, when you tithe, you're not giving a gift to the Lord. He owns it all. You're just returning a portion of what belongs to him that he has given you stewardship over. You're just returning a portion of that as you acknowledge your dependence on the Lord, as you acknowledge it all has come from the Lord. You know, sometimes we get so proud of ourselves when we say, well, I, I tithe or I gave an offering. You're not giving anything to the Lord. It all belongs to him. Abram is acknowledging that the victory came from God. Now, the, the focus of the message today is not on tithing. We'll do that some other time, but, but it's here in the text. And so I just need you to see this is a picture that, that Abram's tithe is given to the priest. It's, it's to remind us that all we have belongs to God, not us. And it's, it's to remind us that when we tithe, we're expressing our dependence on God. So what that means is when we don't tithe, we say, hey, God, I got this. Don't need you. I, I, got, I got it. 
Let's go on to the second man because I feel the air going out of the room and some of you are starting to squirm a little bit. Second man comes out to meet Abram. It's the king of Sodom. Now, this is funny if, if you understand the culture. This is funny. The king of Sodom, and, uh, of Sodom has a, an attitude that's a little bit off-putting. Look what he says. Listen, give me my people and feel free to keep the stuff. Now, that sounds really generous, but here's the reality. Here's the custom. If you conquer, the stuff is yours. It doesn't get returned. If you conquer, the stuff belongs to you. So the custom would have dictated that it was Abram's right to keep all the plunder. Here comes the king of Sodom. Hey, give me my people, and guess what? I'll, I'll let you keep the stuff. And, and here's the other part of that. Even if that wasn't the custom, is the king of Sodom really going to go after Abram for keeping the stuff when Abram humiliated the army that humiliated the king of Sodom? I don't think so. There's probably a caravan by this point behind Abram that stretches several miles or as far as the eye can see. It's got the furniture, the clothing, the jewelry, the pottery, the household goods, the gold and silver. The wealth that Abram returned with would have been staggering. Abraham, Abram had every right to it, but look what he says in verses 22 to 24 at the end of the chapter. He said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord. What does that mean? I've made a commitment to the Lord. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Why? Lest you should say, you wicked sleazy king, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten on the journey. Obviously, they had their provisions to eat. And the share of the men who went with me, let Honor, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. What is Abram doing? He's wanting it to be clear that all he had was a blessing from God, not some sleazy king. He doesn't need it being told around the land of Canaan, well, yeah, Abram's wealthy because the king of Sodom let him keep all the spoils from all these cities. No. Abram said, my blessing is from the Lord. I, I don't need the provision of man. So what do we learn here in chapter 14? What do we learn from this episode in the life of Abram? A couple of things. Number one, and this is really more from Lot than from Abram, that is to stay away from sinful people and places. Don't even draw near. Lot in, in Genesis 13 just moved toward Sodom, and by Genesis 14, he's a resident of Sodom. Don't even draw near. Stay away from sinful people and places. I've told this before, but I don't know a better way to illustrate this. Years ago on Hee Haw, there was this character named Doc. And people would, Doc was a doctor. People would run into Doc with their problems. And a guy runs in one day and says, Doc, Doc, you got to help me. I broke my arm in two places. And Doc says, well, stay out of them places. That's what you need to get. That, that's the spiritual profound lesson I want you to hear today. Stay out of them places. Don't draw near to people or places that are sinful. But then the second thing here in chapter 14 is this. When, if we're going to be Christ-like, we have to be people of great grace toward those who have fallen, especially those within the body. But even those outside the body, if we don't respond in grace, they will never come to know the Lord if they feel judged. 
And so we want to be people of, of great grace. And I'm going to give you this morning very quickly a couple of characteristics, three characteristics of what it looks like to have great grace. And I would say the first thing to you, for you to have these characteristics of great grace in your life, you have to first recognize that you're a recipient of grace. It's pretty easy to judge others when we think we've got it all together, when we forget that we're miserable failures, we're made of dust just like everyone else. We need the grace of God, so why would we extend the grace of God to other people? Let me give you some characteristics real quick. Being a person of great grace means you're willing to give grace freely. Just as Christ has done for you, you're willing to just pour it out freely. You, you have enough humility to recognize you're no different than the person you're looking at who's come to a place of failure. You may not have fallen into the same trap, but you have fallen into a trap and, and you have failed at some point in your journey. So be willing to give grace freely. Be willing, if you're going to give grace, be a person of great grace, be willing to get involved and, and get dirty and, and take some risks. You have to unselfishly sacrifice your own needs to help another. It's going to be a sacrifice. And you have to be willing to unselfishly use your resources to help those who are in need of grace. And then and finally, I would say, just like Abram, it doesn't appear he got any thanks from his nephew Lot. It doesn't appear he got much thanks from the, the king of Sodom was the only one that came out to meet him. None of the other of the five, none of the other four showed up. So if you're going to be a person of great grace, you have to be willing to help without the benefit of personal gain or, or recognition. You don't do it so people will say, man, he's a great guy. Isn't she an awesome lady? You don't do it for personal gain. You don't do it for recognition. You don't have any desire to be repaid. So what we see in Genesis 14, what we see in Genesis 14 this morning is a picture of great grace despite sinful behavior. And that's a picture of Christ, isn't it? And this morning, as we think about our own personal application in Genesis 14, I would say that all of us in the room are at one of two places. Either we're someone in need of grace. Maybe you're here this morning and there's been some stumbling, there's been some failing in your life and you don't feel like you're usable to God. You don't feel like God could possibly love you because of the stumbling and failing in your life. And so you'd say, yeah, this morning I'm a person in need of grace. I, I can't imagine that God would give me that kind of grace. I, I need that kind of grace. Or maybe this morning you're a person, and hopefully this is true of most of us in this room, you're a person who needs to be looking for the opportunity to demonstrate great grace. Maybe you know someone in the body or you know someone in the community that has had some spectacular failure. They can't imagine they'd be worthy of grace. But you could be like Abram, the person who extends great grace to them so they could experience the grace of Christ. Would you bow with me this morning? I want us to take a couple of minutes as we try to do every week and, and just uh, think about the scripture this morning, the, the words of God, not, not the pastor's words, but the words of God. Think about the scripture this morning. What, what has God, God, see the Holy Spirit of God who authored this book is the same Holy Spirit who indwells your life and mine and he knows where we are and he knows how we live and he knows what's happening in our lives. So he's able to take the scripture and apply it to each one of us at our point of need no matter how different our needs are. So what has he said 
to, to you this morning. You, you may be in a position like Lot was where you've made some bad decisions and because of those bad decisions, you've wound up in a place that you probably never would have chosen to be. Not a place you desired to be. But little by little, after that first decision away from God and toward a sinful place, you've gone down a slippery slope and ended up somewhere you don't need to be. There's grace for you. Hopefully, like Lot, when you're rescued from that bad place, you won't return there. But there's grace for you. There's hope for you and there's help for you. Maybe that's the message you needed to hear today from the Word of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you know someone. ended up in a place that they shouldn't be and they don't want to be and they just can't see how to get free they feel like they've been captured hauled away to a place they didn't want to be and they just don't know how to get free they need someone to come along and, and show them the grace of God and maybe you're that person it could be a family member a neighbor a, a friend a fellow believer Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, God. We know that every word is inspired by you and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And Father, for everyone in this room, maybe at a different place in our walk with you, but your Holy Spirit who authored this book is able to speak to us where we are. You're able to teach, take this word. If we need teaching, you're able to teach us. If we need training, if we need correction, if we need reproof, you're, you're able to speak it to us at our point of need. And so I ask that you would do that this morning. And if there are people in the room that are in a place that they don't want to be spiritually, I pray that you'd remind them that grace is available. And if they're willing, you will bring them back from that place. And Father, there are many of us in the room that have experienced failure before, and maybe we know someone that is really struggling and they feel like they're, they're worthless to you because of some bad decisions they've made. Would you help us know how to go and speak grace, the grace of Christ, forgiveness into their lives? Help us hear what you've said to us this morning and help us to respond in obedience.